Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so looking out, I can see now that the men's late night pig roast butting up to springing forward, some could argue, was maybe ill-planned. But I like that some of you cowboyed up, and it's good to see you. A special thanks uh, <clears throat> to Josh for kind of planning it. Uh, it went really well. We had, I think, 18 dudes last night, which is amazing, um, and we uh, we got to eat some really good food. Uh, David Kirkconnick opened up his house, uh, cooked a pig, which I know some of you are thinking, like, do you mean pork? No, I mean an actual pig was cooked, and from that pig we took pork, but that's awesome. He is very much blessed in the ways uh, of cooking. Um, so it's a really good thing, and we kind of challenged the men last night to say, hey, we're not here just to party. Um, uh, we're here to kind of ignite uh, a movement inside the men's ministry that kind of holds each other accountable, that kind of creates a brotherhood. Uh, you've heard me um, say this time and time again, and it's, it's true. You're never going to find brotherhood. You're never going to find community. You're going to create it. Um, and, and we want to kind of start some of those building blocks. That's my, that's my son Levi and Matthew Roundtree. Um, he's doing great. He loves to just gag sometimes, so don't worry. <laughs> um, I don't know I like that. Uh, so that's our hope. Uh, that's our hope for in the men's ministry. If, if you're not already aware, we meet on Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. and we kind of just dive into the Word. Right now we're moving through the New Testament, so that's where we're at. And that's, that's really um, our heart for that ministry and our heart for last night. So I want to thank all uh, involved. Um, today we're going to move into Hebrews 8. And a lot of you are probably thinking, Tim, we used to just move through passages and now we're moving through chapters. And that, welcome to the game of Hebrews. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to cover all of chapters uh, all of the verses in chapter 8 today, it's going to be a really uh, a beautiful text, and there's going to be some pivotal transitional points inside the book of Hebrews that we're going to discuss. So last week, uh, we kind of uh, hit up uh, the full meaning and, and discovered what it was about for the order of Melchizedek, a priesthood uh, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and how he is considered to be a priest under the order of Melchizedek, and how that means he is the great holy high priest, he is a king of righteousness, he's a king of peace. Um, he, he, he calls us to a relationship and not just uh, uh, laws or, or behavior modification, but a, a relationship that transforms your heart. Uh, we covered extensively last week that the law made nothing perfect. Now, the law is going to call to your heart. The idea that you can earn something or, or be a certain way is going to call to you as a human because we are a people who like lists. We're a people who like to know a very specific rule set that we can follow and then find the favor of God. And we talked about the calling of the law. The calling of us um, will ultimately lead to failure, but we have to understand the law was never meant to save you and that the, the law will never make anything perfect. And we kind of talked about the difference between behavior modification and where the law says... If you never commit adultery, then you've never committed adultery. But where the, the, the covenant of grace says, if you struggle with lust in your heart every day of your life, but you actually never act on it, you're still not free because you're struggling. You're just white-knuckling behavior modification. That's, a, that's the equivalent of an alcoholic saying, I'm not taking a drip of alcohol, but all I think day in, day out is about alcohol. And then we would say that you're not free. And the, and, and the law made no one free, but salvation through Jesus Christ makes you free because he's saying, I don't want to give you a list. I want your heart and your soul. I want a relationship with you. I want to transform who you are into the image of me. 
it falls in, in the face and it, and, it, and it blasts out the dogma of church where it says you just can't play the game of church. And I don't know where you are as far as your church history or how long you've been involved in a church. But in, in modern America, in, in modern Christendom of, of the church, it's easy to play the game. It's easy to show up every Sunday at 10, sit in the same spot, pretend to open your Bible, and, and just go through the motions. And, and we've talked about in the book of Hebrews where that's where Satan wants you. Satan wants you going through the motions. Satan wants you to worry about behavior modification. Satan wants you to play the game of church and hope that you never actually have a relationship with your Savior. This week, um, we're going to continue down uh, the, the, the roles and the person and the work of Jesus. So, you can always tell what someone loves, right, if you talk to them. If you talk to someone long enough and they're willing to be honest with you and you dive into them with any kind of authenticity, with any kind of genuineness, you're going to find out what someone loves in the first 10 or 15 minutes of a dinner or, or, or a hanging out by a fire while a pig's being roasted. If you hang out with me, um, and, and I'm not trying to be too on as a pastor, I'm done shaking hands, kissing babies, and I'm just being real Tim, and you want me to geek out, um, I'm willing to geek out about a few things. And if we, if we get into a subject matter, I'm willing to talk, I know a little about a lot, that kind of stuff, but if we really dive in and you say, hey Tim, Pull it. <laughs> that's not really what we're going, but I do love Chipotle, and I love that that was just shouted out. That's awesome. Um, Okay, so full disclosure, that's not a Tourette's moment. I generally make a lot of teaching um, imagery on Chipotle and how much I love it. Um, but, pivot back. <laughs> so if you say, hey Tim, you follow the Dallas Cowboys any? And I'd be like, a little. I mean, I'm worried about the salary cap and if we're able to sign Dak to $41 million, but if we don't sign him and we're able to use that luxury tax where we put an actual tag on him, are we going to be able to meet the open market requirements? It's going to be a $32 million franchise tag, but are we going to have two franchise tags? I don't know if the player agreement is actually going to be voted in by March 13th, but if it is, that's going to hurt us because we can't franchise Dak and Austin. And if we can't tag you get them both, we're going to have a great quarterback with no one to throw to. But if we lose Dak and he goes to Miami, we, we lose a known NFL substance and then we're going to be drafting and you don't know who will be ready in three years but our team collectively is built for the next two years because we can't keep the left side of our offensive line if you can't keep the left side of your offensive line then what are we going to do we don't have the money we're two years out that's why they hired mccarthy is he the best coach no he's not the best coach out there but he's the best coach if you want to win now so i like the cowboys <laughs> and i could really preach on that for the next 15 minutes and I'm really excited about the draft. And if you, if you opened me up, there would be a moment of, hey, Tim's kind of talking to me. And then once we pivoted to sports, there would be this flood of like, okay, I've entered into what Tim loves. I've entered into, I mean, are we talking about the Mavericks? Is Luca? Who wants to talk about Luca for a while? I mean, it's quickly becoming Zion's league, but Luca right now is amazing. We don't have time for me to explain to you my love for the Dallas Cowboys or why I think the best thing the city of Dallas has made in the history of the city of Dallas is a shrine to Dirk and Vince. Um... But that's what I love. And as you read Hebrews, I hope that you're starting to understand. Yeah, I have a point. I just didn't want to talk about sports. Uh, when you read Hebrews, I think you're starting to understand the writer of Hebrews just loves the imagery of Christ. The, the writer of Hebrews is, is a pastor who is writing a letter to his congregation, and he wants for his congregation the same thing that I want for my congregation, is I want to be you, for you to be infused 
with the knowledge of Christ. I want you to have the love of Christ and the understanding of what Christ has done pouring through the marrow of your bones. I want this not to be a name you know for Easter and Christmas, but I want this to be something you cling to in your darkest hour at 3 in the morning on Tuesday when your world is crashing in and you think nobody understands you. I want you to cling to the cause of Christ. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants, and you're going to hear him spew that out. You have probably thought, hey Tim, your last seven sermons have really been the same sermon. Yeah, and the next seven will too, because the writer of Hebrews says, I will die before my congregation doesn't understand Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Because you cannot understand the person of Christ without understanding the cross of Christ. And you can't understand the cross of Christ without understanding the person of Christ. And that's really the pivot we're making today. He's saying, hey, we have talked about the person of Christ and who he is as the great high priest, but we're about to talk about the cause of Christ, the work of Christ, the cross of Christ, because you have to understand what he did on Calvary. You can't just think he died and rose again. That's really cool. He conquered hell in the grave because you can't kill a real God. I get that. No, you have to understand why he died. If you just think it was miraculous that he rose from the dead, but you don't understand why he died in the first place, this whole thing's lost on you. And the writer of Hebrews and Tim want to implore you to open up your Bibles and, 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 and read Hebrews, Hebrews with an open mind understanding, I want to know more about Jesus. Today in the book, we do see the pivot and the turning point from the person to the work, but it's two sides of the same coin. All right, stay seated because we're just going to move through this as we go. Like I said, I've really enjoyed the way that we've taught lately because there is a lot of beauty in the read-together application, read-together application. I like just diving into a passage and working through it and seeing where the Spirit takes me. So, let me pray over us and we're going to dive in. God, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, just the opportunity we have as your sons and daughters to, to dive into your word. God, I pray that for the next few minutes we just focus on your word, that we, we, that we apply on our hearts, that we let the Spirit come into this room and the Spirit move. Amen. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. So I'm actually going to read verses 1 through 6 before we stop, but... The beauty of the first sentence is not, I hope it's not lost on you. We cover a lot of deep scripture, and sometimes I'll read the scripture, and it's so, it's so deep, and, and it's so, so weighty that I'm like, I don't know what I just read. I need to go find out someone much smarter than me. But I love that the writer of Hebrews really gave, gave you a stopgap and say, hey guys, we've covered a lot. Let me kind of transition you with the main point. And he says, now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for these priests to have something to offer. Verse 4. Now, if you were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow. Say copy and shadow. Of a heavenly thing. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that has shown to you on the mountain. So verses 1 through 5, he's saying, Hey, 
We have this understanding of, of the holy high priest and what he's done. And when he died on the cross and was buried and rose uh, on the third day and, and conquered hell in the grave, and now he's sitting at the right hand of, of God. He is sitting at the right hand of majesty. And he's kind of uh, confronting this idea that potentially Christ did all this, is now in heaven sitting by God and just wondering how all this plays out. He's not sitting up there with his popcorn and says, Good luck, guys want the best for you. But he is, he is the kingdom of earth on heaven. He is in us. He is a part of us. And this really flies in the face of probably my early uh, childhood understandings of the Sunday school stuff where you think we're earth and heaven is way somewhere else and, 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 and it's, it's, it's the galaxies far, far away kind of stuff. And, and that's how movies portray it and that's how TV shows portray it. But the idea of heaven and why it's so uh, hard to understand, and I don't know if we'll fully understand it this side of heaven, is that heaven is a real place, but it's not just galaxies away. And that the kingdom of heaven, which is Christ's work, is actually here in us. And that when you see in, in the, the, the ministry of John the Baptist where he says the kingdom of heaven is here, or when Christ says in Luke, hey, don't, don't listen to people that say the heaven's over here or heaven is over here, but the kingdom of heaven is in you, he's saying that we serve a Savior that transcends the priests that came before him where they were compartmentalization of where heaven was. Because you have to understand Old Testament theology and Mosaic law that the presence of God was confined in a compartmental place inside the holies of holies. So how they constructed the tabernacle, how they constructed the tent that God instructed them is, there was the tent that everyone could go to, there was the court where uh, astute, learned people could go and they could debate law and they could ask questions about scriptures. There was the holy place where just the Levitical priests could go and they could, uh, they could argue and, and, and robust conversations were had. And then past that, there was the holies of holy where only the high priest could go on the Day of Atonement. And that was where the presence of God was. And it was compartmentalized and you had to do certain things. You had to be an appointed high priest. You had to offer sacrifices first for yourself and then for the nation of Israel. You went in and you made those sacrifices uh, for the year for the tribe of Israel. And that is how it worked time and time again. And inside the holy places where we see the Shekinah glory of, of God. And, and for the, the, the readers of Hebrews, they're thinking, okay, God was in one spot in a specific place and a specific people could come to him. Now that Christ has conquered hell in the grave, where what happens? There's no really need for this holy of holies. There's no real need for a high priest. And he's saying, you're correct. Because all of the division, all the dividing points that kept you from the holies of holies, the curtain and there go that kept the, the, the presence of God away from his people was torn by the work of Christ. One of the most beautiful moments of imagery in the New Testament is when Christ breathed his last breath, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, showing you that there is now no separation. There is no compartmentalization of where you find your God and your Savior because he is in you, he is with you, and he is all around, and he will make all things new. And when you think about all things new, he's bringing Zion here. And I don't have time for an in-depth debate on eschatology, but I'm saying Christ is everywhere. Christ is in you. And I hope uh, that spurs you on to never feel alone. Those moments of isolations are just lie. You're never on your own. You're never walking alone. You're never in this thing by yourself. You have a Savior that's with you every second of every day. <coughs> that wasn't a dramatic pause. I'm just having trouble breathing. Um, and there's this beauty that says we don't need we don't need an earthly high priest because we have a divine high priest. 
We have a high priest that's changed the game of Mosaic law. He's brought the kingdom of heaven to us. Let's continue on, verses 6 through 13. But, at it, but as it is in Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant, he mediates is better since he, it is enacted on a better promise. For if that first covenant had been flawless, there would be have no occasion to look for a second. So they're saying right there is, the law, if it was worked, if it was meant to work, <coughs> sorry, if the law in of itself was meant to work or was supposed to be the long-term plan, there would have been no need for Christ to come. Verses 8, for he, find, for he finds fault with them when he is written. So what he's saying is, there is fault with them, not the law. And I know some of the people... <coughs> I'm sorry. I know it's easy for us to read the Old Testament and uh, look at the nation of Israel and think, man, these guys can't get it together. They had lists that we like. They had something that you could check off. They had something... That was tangible, right? Don't kill, thus you're not a murderer. If you murder, then you need to kill a goat. Or don't lust, don't commit adultery. If you commit adultery, you need to kill a bird. It was very this for that. It was very understandable. It was very tangible. <coughs> so it's easy for us to think, man, if they would just got their stuff together, um, this law thing wasn't that bad. But what he's writing right here is saying, the law was never the problem you were. The law was never meant to work. The law was a shadow and a copy of the thing that would ultimately work. He put this law in place because he's a sovereign God, God that led us to the need for a Savior. He had this, this mosaic law entrenched into the minds of the nation of Israel. So they saw for hundreds of years, sin meant blood. Your sin cost someone's life. Your inability to follow God's law cost a, an animal its life, and its lifeblood bled in the temple. So this idea that the law was messed up it is false. The law made perfect sense. The humans it was laid out to just couldn't follow it. Verse 6, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed them no concern, declares the Lord. <coughs> Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, which is the days of the cross, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So there's a direct tie to the Shema. I know we, we can't recover the Shema every January when we talk about love God, love others, make disciples. And in the Shema, and in the Old Testament, it said they would bind the law on their hands and on their foreheads. And he's saying, I'm not about that law. I'm going to bind it on your mind and on your heart. He's saying that I no longer want behavior modification. I want a relationship. I want my law, the law of grace, the law of salvation in your soul. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We have a deep desire inside all of us to belong. We have a deep desire uh, to, to feel at home 
with humans. We have a deep desire to feel at home at where we're at. True confidence is never about accomplishment, but it's about feeling feeling accepted and belonging to something. And he says, you will be my people, I will be your God. (coughs) I don't have the corona. (laughs) On that note, I... I really felt stupid about two months ago buying so much hand sanitizer. It was just silly, and now I'm a genius. And I'm actually selling it uh, in dime bags. Uh, and at any point, uh, the first taste is free. You can have the first one squirt, it's for you, but then you got to pay for the second comeback. So um, on that note, but no, I'm, I do not have that, I don't think. And they shall not teach this one uh, to their neighbors. Uh, and they shall not teach each one of these to their neighbors and each one of their, uh, his brothers, saying, uh, not Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least uh, of them to the greatest. Now I'll just butcher that. I'm going to try that again. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one of his neighbors, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now I know right there you're thinking, like, No, we have, the great, we have the great commission. We're supposed to go out. We're supposed to uh, declare uh, the truth of Christ, and we're supposed to make disciples. He's not saying don't tell people about Jesus. He's saying once you've converted them, they know Christ. Now, you can dive in to your, your, your faith, and I encourage you to constantly yearn to know more and more about your faith and to grow closer and closer to Christ. But what he's saying, if there's a true conversion, unlike the Levitical law where you believe, but you, your, your progressive status inside the Old Testament law was your knowledge, your academic knowledge and studious ability to recount and memorize Mosaic law is how you got your status. He's saying under the New Covenant, whether you are the most prolific theologian, author of your day, or if God opened your heart on a park bench and you've known him for 15 minutes, that you know your Savior. And that there's not, there's not a matrix, there's not a stair step of salvation. You are saved and you are his or you are not. And yes, you can dive in and there's progressive sanctification in every step of your day. I hope leads you more and more to the image of Christ and leads you more and more to his ways. But if he's opened your heart to the truth of Christ, then you know your Savior. And if he hasn't, he hasn't. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. Iniquities does not mean sin. Iniquities mean you have a bent towards sin. It means that if it was up to me and you, this whole thing would burn down. And I will remember their sin no more. This is important for us to understand because there are some of you finding yourself today smiling, give me the thumbs up, I ask you how you're doing, you're going to tell me you're doing good, even though I get paid to read people for a living, so half the time I'm like, that's a lie, do you want me to hug you, how do we want to handle this, but you're not doing good. Um, but some of you aren't doing good because you've, you've bought into the lies of Satan that what you've done can't be forgiven. The life that you live can't be forgiven. Maybe it's even the life that you lived. Maybe, maybe you've actually progressed past the, the point where you were just living in other open rebellion, but whatever you did in your time of rebellion, you think it's so bad that yes, Christ can, uh, can save humanity, but he can't save what you, he did in your early 20s. Or your iniquities, the fact that you have these these yearnings and these desires to be sinful and broken. And what I want to say to that is one, it's a lie, and two, get over yourself. There's no way that you're the only person that's been so bad that Christ can't save you. And I've been there. 
I've literally walked out. I've, I've led this church from a position where I thought if they knew the darkness inside of me, they wouldn't allow me to be this, the, the leader of this church. If they know the things I've done in rebellion, I wouldn't be able to lead this church. One, that's Satan just spewing lies. And two, I need to get over myself. That is you saying that your sin is more powerful than the God that conquered hell in the grave. And that's just a lie. It doesn't even make sense. Everything you've done, the, the, from the moment you were born to this moment, every breath you breathed in open rebellion, every sin that you've ever committed, once you open your heart to Christ, He becomes your, your Lord and you, He becomes... Uh, your Savior has been forgiven at the point of the cross. And I know we're talking about time matrices right now because He saved you from things you hadn't even done yet, but that's the kind of Savior we're dealing with. He conquered hell in the grave. He operates under no constraint of time. No matter what you've done, you've already been forgiven, but you have to accept that forgiveness and live free. That goes back to the Old Testament of saying you can't white-knuckle your way to heaven. You can't behavior modification yourself into a good person. You were born broken. You're going to die broken. Your only chance is salvation through Jesus Christ. And in speaking in the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. He's saying there is no need to kill a bull. I've killed my son. And what is coming and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I want to leave you with a few points. One, he is merciful towards your iniquities. The sin desire you have in you that you hate to look yourself in the mirror for has been forgiven and loved in Jesus Christ. He will remember your sins no more if you are covered with the atoning blood of Jesus Christ because when God looks at you, He looks at you through Christ. The law was never meant to save you. The law is not a failed experiment. Jesus is not a divine plan B. We have a sovereign God that loved us so much that He slowly and surely pointed us to the cause of Christ. And some of you can't let go of our archaic laws to take in the freedom of grace. You have pagers in your hand when an iPhone 11 is at your grasp. You are His people. You belong. You belong here. You're a called people for a called time, for a called place. God's called you. No one became to 1139 Turner Avenue, came all the way upstairs, and sat in this room by happenstance. Nobody just kind of fell into this. You were called here by a sovereign God, and you were called here to work. The old ways that keep you constrained, the old ways that fill you with lies, the old ways that keep you exactly where Satan wants you are obsolete. Let me pray over us, and we're going to keep worshiping. God, thank you for sending your only Son that we may know freedom, that we may walk in an in, in open relationship with our Savior, that we, that we don't have to be about behavior modification, but we can be about heart transformation. God, I pray that we would believe these truths, that we would understand these truths, that we would apply these truths. God, I pray all things in your name. Amen.